You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. preaching team boot camp members who made it through. Um, So like Max said, my name is Kelly. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I've been uh, with Forefront for almost two years now. Um, And really, it is my hope and my prayer that at least some part of what I'm going to share resonates with each of you. So with that, Um, A couple weeks ago, I was in Virginia for a wedding, and my friends and I went to Nando's. I don't know if anyone else has been. Chicken is good. Chicken is good. Um, But as we were waiting for our food, I noticed that on the wall behind the cashier was this beautiful and elaborate retelling of the origin of the restaurant and peri-peri, which is the spice that the food chain is famous for. And I won't read the whole thing, but it starts by saying, for centuries, the people of Southeast Africa have used peri-peri to bring fire to their food. It is in Mozambique's rich soil and blistering sunshine that the Africa bird's eye chili grows into its fiery best. When Portuguese explorers arrived there, they were enchanted by its flavor. They added a squeeze of lemon, a kick of garlic, and turned peri-peri into a very well-traveled spice which is how many years later it ended up in Rosettenfield, Johannesburg at a little Portuguese eatery called Chickenland. I have to say that living at the intersection of various oppressed identities is exhausting. Not only because you can't get chicken without being conscious of colonization and the destruction and theft that it leaves in its wake, but it's exhausting and frustrating and angering that the violence of colonization is romanticized in its retelling. And the subject of that violence and violation is essentially erased. The Portuguese invaded Mozambique. They set up a slave trade and exploited its people, culture, and resources. And you would never know that by going to Nando's. That is left out of its origin story. And I think we all have words or expressions that clue us into the fact that we're not getting the whole picture, that there are people and places and things left out of a story. For me, explorers is a big one. (laughs) Anytime I hear it, my ears perk up and I'm like, wait a minute, what are we talking about? And I think we all have words or expressions that clue us into the fact that we're not getting this picture, and you all know what I mean, right? A lot of the times it has to do with oppressed identities or our lived experiences. If you're plus size and hear people talking about weight, or even if you hear the word plus size, because language can normalize in the same way it can stigmatize. Um, And if you're a woman and hear someone talking about gender roles, if you're formerly incarcerated and someone is talking about justice or safety, or if you're a proud Brooklyn native such as myself, 
and someone says outer boroughs. <laughs> it is ridiculous. And ignores the fact that Brooklyn is clearly superior. <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. Uh, language is life, and so much of how we define ourselves and the world around us is based on storytelling. And who gets to tell and interpret these stories has a lot to do with privilege and power. And I think as people who are endeavoring to follow Christ, as many of us are, we have a responsibility to challenge that and be mindful of who is telling the story and who gets left out. And I think the story of Onan and Tamar and the teaching around that story gives us a chance to do that. Or at least it gave me a chance to do that. Um, who here has read or heard about the story of Onan? Anyone? We got a few folks. Okay. So it's the one where he spills his seed and God gets angry and kills him. Yeah. It's a good one. Um, and if your recollection of this story or how it's been framed for you is similar to mine, then you know that this has been used a lot to condemn masturbation. And I don't remember how I learned this because it wasn't in the church that I grew up in. I talked to my mom while I was preparing the sermon and that was never how it was preached. And so however or whenever I received this messaging, it was incredibly effective because it was the first thing I thought about when I was assigned to preach on this. And then I read the scripture again and I got pissed. Not because the passage has nothing to do with masturbation and has been manipulated to bring about centuries of shame, guilt, and anxiety, um, but because this framing effectively erases Tamar, who I'd argue is the most important character in this story. And it's a story that was not written to and oftentimes hasn't been told in a way that depicts Tamar's perspective or shares her voice. So I'm going to back up and give us some context. We're in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and there's this guy named Judah. Now, Judah is not a great guy. Um, you might remember the story of Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, so the one with the colorful coat or the technicolor coat. Um, he was the favorite son of Jacob, and all of his brothers were super jealous of him, including Judah. Um, and they were jealous because he got this coat and he was the favorite and he had these prophetic dreams. And at one point he was like, when I grow up, I'm going to rule over all of you. And so to be fair, Joseph was annoying, but his brothers conspired to kill him. And Judah was like, wait, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. So let's sell him into slavery instead. So that is Judah. Um, so after selling his brother, he leaves and gets married to a Canaanite woman. And this is bad news bears because Judah is one of the chosen people and Canaanites aren't and they worship different gods and so they're not supposed to intermarry. But they do um, and they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so Genesis chapter 38, 6 through 10 says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law, to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. 
What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. So I have to imagine that if you're Judah, you're feeling really crappy to have raised not one but two sons who are smoked by God. Um, and so we don't even know what Ur did, um, but there's a lot of debate around Onan's sin. So we're going to go through some of the theories. So the one, there's one argument that he was killed because of masturbation. Around the 1700s, Onanism, which is the term that is used for Onan's act, had become synonymous with masturbation. And this might have had something to do with the religious shift around the late 1600s and early 1700s, where Protestant theologians argued that the human soul existed in semen. So again, we're ignoring the role of women. Um, so that by spilling your seed, this would be essentially committing murder. This wasn't a popular idea, but then the medical community latched on with concerns about self-abuse and going blind and various neuroses. Um, so, you know, however the link between Onan and masturbation came about, we know that that's not what this story is about at all. And so there's another theory that it's because of coitus interruptus, so interrupting the act of sex so that the woman doesn't become pregnant. This was pushed by those who believed that sex was solely for procreation. Again, that feels like a stretch. Um, and I think the most widely accepted reason and the one that is noted in my life application study Bible is that he was killed because he refused to fulfill his obligation to his brother and Tamar. But I don't think that's it either. Or at least it can't be the whole story. So here's more context. This obligation that, you know, Onan is supposed to be carrying out is known as the leveret marriage. And this is an ancient law all about the principles of secession and inheritance. And it was set up to protect childless widows because they were among the most vulnerable people. Um, and so Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 through 10, this is a few books later in the Bible, it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, <clears throat> if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him, talk to him, and if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, and this is where it gets, this is my favorite part, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family's line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. <laughs> this is harsh. <laughs> and this is shame and humiliation that lasts for generations. And it's bad. But it's not God smiting you bad. And it's true that Onan doesn't want to give up his new status as the oldest. And so that means if Tamar remains childless, Onan would be the one who inherits his father's wealth and his land. And this would also cement Tamar's vulnerable status because she's inheriting nothing. Um, and so, and those things are bad. 
Like we could agree those are, those are not good things, but I think the evil is in the violation of Tamar. Onan took advantage of her and used her for sex with no intention of doing right by her. So what if God killing Onan was an act of justice for Tamar? What if God is saving Tamar? What if this is all about Tamar and God showing just how much they cared about her? So let's keep this possibility in our minds as we go back to the story. So after Onan is killed, Judah is like, uh, how about you, Tamar? Go back to your father. Live there as a widow until Shelah, the third and final son, comes of age, and then you can marry him. But the scripture makes it clear that Judah had no intention of them marrying because he was afraid that his son would be killed as well. And so when he blames Tamar instead of taking this as an opportunity to raise this son better than the last two. So Tamar goes back to her father's house, and we have to keep in mind that because of the Leverett Law and Judah's promise, Tamar can't marry anyone else. So many years pass, and Judah's wife dies, and the text says that after Judah mourns, he goes to Temna to share his sheep. And some unnamed person who's looking out for Tamar tells her that Judah is on his way to Temna. So Tamar sets up a plan. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Temna. Because she saw that although Shayla was grown now, she had not been given to him as a wife. And so side note, this is also Judah not honoring the Leverett Law, but not being killed by God because of it. So I think this supports my theory that there was more to Onan's offense than just not following the law. And so Judah sees her, he thinks she's a prostitute because her face is covered, and offers to pay her a young goat to have sex with her. Tamar asks for his seal, cord, and staff as collateral. So Judah agrees they have sex, Tamar becomes pregnant. Judah goes back home and tries to send the goat as payment, but is unable to find Tamar again. Three months later, someone tells Judah that Tamar is pregnant as a result of prostitution. And Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And so as she is being brought out, Tamar sends a message to Judah and says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. <laughs> right? See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognizes them and says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. And Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. So there's another argument that God killed Onan because he was interfering with the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Now, Abraham is a big deal and considered the father of our faith. Um, and for this argument, we'll assume that people can interfere with God's plans. Um, and so God made a promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed God. And Jesus is believed to be the fulfillment of this promise. The genealogy goes, Abraham is the father of Jacob, who's the father of Judah. Judah and Tamar have Perez and Zerah. And a few generations down from Perez comes King David, and a few more generations comes Jesus. But I don't think that's why God killed Onan. 
because Judah was also interfering with the fulfillment of God's promise. So what if God chose Tamar to be an ancestor of Jesus because of what Onan did, because of what Judah did, because of what I'm assuming Ur did? What if God chose Tamar because she was a foreigner and a widow, because she was a sex worker? So not all retellings of this story ignore Tamar. Um, but even the ones that note her importance have a lot of commentary that condemns her actions and argues that by placing her in the lineage of Christ, God is redeeming her scandalous acts. But to me, Tamar's story reads more of a justice story than a redemption one. And by having her name written in the genealogy of Christ, as we see in Matthew and the New Testament, God is publicly and permanently declaring their allegiance. They're saying, I have come for the oppressed, those who are denied justice again and again. I have put you in a place of prominence. I will tell your story. I will make sure your name is counted. Your connection to me will be undeniable. When people say that women cannot be included, I will write your name. And at this time, women were not allowed to be included in genealogies. So maybe God is saying, when people say that widows can't be included, I will write your name. When people say that sex workers can't be included, I will write your name. When people say that foreigners are not included, I will write your name. They were trying to deny Tamar her legacy and lineage, and Tamar wasn't having it. <laughs> and neither was God. And neither should you. You should not accept narratives or storylines that ignore your lived experiences or anyone else's. Jonathan talked a lot about how the Bible has been interpreted through a lens of white supremacy and sexism, classism, and all the other hateful isms. But it isn't limited to the Bible. It's in books and movies and news media and social media and the language that we use every day. It's literally everywhere. And I think the first step is caring enough to see it. Because once you do, you can't unsee it. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And it is my sincere hope that you'll never hear explorers again without thinking about the violence of colonization. Because language is life, and so much of how we define ourselves and the world around us is based on storytelling. And we see in the scripture that how we tell stories can be the difference between casting someone as needing redemption instead of demanding justice. The scripture says life and death are in the power of the tongue, and it is so true. The language we use and the stories we tell dictate <clears throat> who we care about and how we care. It shapes policies and laws. It maintains the status quo or it dismantles systems of oppression. Think about whose lived experiences are being ignored. Ask yourself who's being silenced when you speak. We see this a lot when people address poverty. New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, constantly talks about his cleanup plan for the city. And what is left out of this framing, out of this storytelling, is the violence that homeless people face in the name of this cleanup. Homeless encampments throughout the city are routinely swept, further displacing them and destroying their possessions, literally using language that equates them to trash. 
And the justification is that they are provided with resources and access to shelters, none of which addresses the root cause of poverty, but lets us feel as if they're being redeemed. Gentrification, which I would argue is colonization on a local scale, has a similar effect. Talking about neighborhoods as up and coming does two things. Well, many things, but for the purpose of this sermon, two things. First, it diminishes or oftentimes ignores the lived experiences of people who have always called that space home. It ignores the ways in which they've built community and safety and family and joy, and it casts them as needing redemption instead of justice, as needing to be improved upon. And the second is that it allows us to ignore the systemic violence and neglect that has been levied against them. It makes inequalities and inequities in education, healthcare, employment, um, personal moral failing, instead of the result of centuries of divestment. Framing Tamar as being in need of redemption allows us to ignore what drove her to do what she did. And it makes her a passive actor in her own story. It ignores the role she played in her own liberation, in our liberation. If anything, Judah, Ur, and Onan were the ones who needed redemption. I think Judah would agree. He says that Tamar was more righteous than he was. And so what if this is a story about how Tamar redeemed them? How Tamar redeemed the bloodline of Christ? What if this is God, what if, this, what if God is not only saying to Tamar, I have come for you, but I have come through you. I have come from you. You, woman, sex worker, widow, insert oppressed identity, will give birth to the liberation. You will redeem those who cause you harm. What if that's the story we should be telling? Imagine a world where we spoke about those we considered the least of these the way I imagine God spoke about Tamar. Whose story would you retell? Would you retell your own? Your neighbors, the people you pass on the street? The story you told about your family earlier? What would the world look like if we not only thought about those whose lived experiences were being ignored or diminished, but we made sure those stories were told in the places and spaces where they've historically been left out, where the oppressors are in need of redemption and the marginalized are the redeemers. Because what if the tamers of the world are the ones ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity? If that's the case, I wanna make sure I'm doing justice to their stories, justice to my story, justice to your story, don't you? Pray with me. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for the honor and privileges to, to just speak up out of your word. I pray that we would all become more just storytellers, that we would be mindful about whose story is being told and whose story isn't. Lord, I pray that you would order our tongues um, because life and death lies in the power of our tongue, Lord, and I pray that we would all Use our tongues to give life. And yes, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. 
To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.